Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. KCAA. Loma Linda. 1050 AM. The station that needs no listener behind. Fishermen used to rely on good luck to haul in the big catch. But when they begin relying on information instead of luck, they almost caught all the fish in the sea. That leads us to ask, can we catch fish so there will be fish left to catch? Welcome to the award-winning Food Chain Radio Show with your host, Michael Olson. And now, get ready for one hour of What's Eating What Radio. Well, hello out there. You are tuned into the 1314th edition of the Food Chain Radio Show. Or hey, perhaps you're among our friends up there in Quebec City who are tuned into the Food Chain Podcast at MetroFarm.com. Well, whoever you are and wherever you are, welcome aboard. I am Michael Olson, your host for this hour of What's Eating What. Folks, given the technologies of the information age, we the people have become very adept at catching fish. In fact, if we could get away with it, like we got away with killing off all the buffalo, we would probably go out and catch all the fish in the sea. And why not? There are a lot of hungry people that need to be fed, and there is a lot of money to be made. But we simply can't get away with it. If we do catch all the fish in the sea, there will be no more fish left to catch. Who, then, will feed all those hungry people? And how are we going to make any money fishing? And so some of us are taking steps to establish sustainable fisheries. That is simply a fishery where fishermen can go back year after year and catch fish but only to the extent that the fish they do not catch can reproduce themselves and the fishery. Certainly not all of us are taking those steps, and if you think about the business of setting up sustainable fisheries, it's a lot like the business of managing greenhouse gases. Some communities will eliminate all their wood-burning fireplaces. Other communities will build coal-burning power plants. But that is our world, And it does lead us to ask, can we catch fish so there will be fish left to be caught? Well, here to help us catch an answer, we have Nicholas Sullivan, who is a senior research fellow at Tufts University and the author of The Blue Revolution, Hunting, Harvesting, and Farming Seafood in the Information Age. Nicholas, welcome to the food chain. Thank you. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. Yes, yeah, so pleasure to have you aboard. Uh, do you, are you a fisherman? Not so much. I was when I was younger. 
I used to catch scup in Rhode Island and tatog and things like that. But uh, and uh, around where I live in Massachusetts now, we do some blue fishing and bass fishing in the summer. But uh, I'm not a big recreational fisher. No. Okay. All right. Well, do you eat fish then? I eat fish. I, last night I had some branzino. In fact. Well, then, if uh, you eat fish, you're a fisherman. I think. That's right. That's right. Okay. Well. It seems like our world is trying to make the transition from, from fishing for fish to farming for fish. By that, I mean the fish of the sea are being penned up in fish farms, and even our free-swimming fish populations are being corralled by laws, rules, and regulations. Is there any wild west left for the fishermen and women of the world? Yes. Uh, the wild west is basically um, on the high seas, the high seas being the 40% of the world's ocean that is outside the territorial, territorial zones of countries. Every country has a 200-mile uh, limit, exclusive economic zone. And beyond that, it's the high seas. And they, uh, the high seas are not very well regulated. I mean, there are UN regulations and mandates and resolutions, but... Um, it's pretty hard to enforce them because it's such a vast territory. And I, the other thing I would say is that there are some countries where um, uh, even within their exclusive economic zone, there definitely is overfishing. And there's even raiding by other countries that are coming mm -hmm. in to some of the west coast of Africa in particular, the west coast of South America, uh, tend to get kind of marauders and pirates. Well, we see that um, China seems to be one of the countries that's doing a lot of marauding. And we see that some of the of those smaller countries are actually uh, sinking those Chinese fishing boats with gunfire. So there's a lot, I guess it really is the Wild West in a lot of ways. Well, yeah. I mean, I know, uh, I think it was last fall or maybe it was a year ago, the um, Chinese squid boats are off the um, Galapagos National Park which is, you know, um, kind of off-limits to fishing, but they had lighting up the sky with lights to attract squid and taking squid and who knows what else out of the water. The Ecuadorian uh, Navy couldn't deal with it. They called in the U.S. Coast Guard to come down, and they drove the Chinese ships down to Chile. The Chileans drove them down to Argentina. I think the Argentines did sink one or two of those boats. So, yeah, there's that kind of stuff is going on. You know, one of the issues with that kind of high seas or illegal fishing is that there are a lot of countries have, or I should say a handful of countries, have subsidies to um, provide distant water fleets with the wherewithal to go out for weeks or months at a time. The business would not be profitable without the subsidies, but there's $35 billion in global subsidies the World Trade Organization has been trying to outlaw those for 20 years, and we're on the verge of doing so last fall. And their um, conference or a meeting uh, that was supposed to be kind of the uh, the, the final uh, vote uh, was postponed due to COVID. So that's still an open question. But the subsidies are a huge problem, and um, if they were removed and it could be enforced, it would really change the uh, nature of the game because there would not be uh, the free market reason to go out and spend all the, that fuel and time and 
labor on the high seas. It's almost like economic warfare. Right. Yeah. But, you know, I think, you know, and and you're right. And it's, you know, uh, I when I got into this book, and my question initially was, where are the fish? Like, as you posited at the beginning, where are the fish going to come from to feed the world? Um, I and I was aware of illegal IUU, you know, illegal, unreported, unregulated fishing. But I had no idea of the extent of it. And they. The estimates are that 30% of the fish that are caught are kind of IUU, illegal, unreported, unregulated. And that is just a huge um, sinker, sinker on the world resource, you know. They, you tell a wonderful story about uh, one fisherman that has a whole fleet, and well, I'd love to pick that story up later because it's illustrative of that problem for sure. But uh, a quick note about you. You're uh, right there on the coast, and uh, your book, Blue Revolution, focuses on that uh, northeast coast uh, fishery of the United States, which is uh, traditionally a magnificent fishery, and uh, but not so much anymore. So tell us a little bit. Let's let's go up to the Grand Banks and talk about the cod fishery of the Grand Banks because um, way back when in the 1600s, when the Europeans first started fishing that fishery, they they wrote that. There are so many fish, it's almost impossible to row a boat through them. Right. Uh, amazing yeah. to even think about the fish being that prolific. What happened? And I think that actually even the early, uh, earlier than that, in about 1000 A.D., Basque fishermen from Spain were fishing uh, off the coast of uh, the Grand Banks and the coast of the U.S., and keeping it a secret from the rest of the world. Right. Um, well, obviously, it's been overfished. I mean, Daniel Pauly, who's a great marine biologist at the University of Vancouver, puts the kind of the biomass, the level of the biomass or the you know volume of the cod stock at about one percent of its you know 1600s or maybe even 19th century. I'm not sure which. I can't remember. But yeah, so it's been much reduced by overfishing. And now it's been, you know, in 1992, if you look at uh, Newfoundland, if you look at kind of a jagged line going up and down over the 70s and 80s, 92 just drops off the table. They shut down the fishery, 30,000 people out of work overnight, more or less. And um, but the same thing was happening in the U.S., but the U.S. kept fishing. It, it reduced levels with more restrictions. But what's be what became obvious or more obvious you know, in the by 2015, is that warming waters are also now having a huge impact on cod and their ability to survive from a juvenile to an adult to spawn. Uh, they're smaller. The females are having fewer babies. And um, so overfishing is clearly the driver. But as the NOAA fisheries will now say, an equally important co-driver is uh, climate change. And the mm -hmm. Gulf of Maine is warming seven times faster than the rest of the world's oceans. Wow. Now, to help people understand why the area of the Northeast Atlantic, uh, particularly, you know, the northern northeastern United States and Canada and Newfoundland have been traditionally such, you know, lucrative fisheries, 
What is about the geography there that, that makes it so prolific there? Yeah, uh, great question. And it, it is the uh, confluence of two major ocean currents, the Labrador current coming down from the Arctic, mixing with the Gulf Stream coming up from the south. And that dynamic interaction uh, wells up nutrients from the bottom of the ocean, feeds the phytoplankton, uh, which are at the bottom of the food chain, and the phytoplankton on Georgia's banks, say, the kind of hallowed fishing grounds 90 miles off the coast of Cape Cod, um, phytoplankton there are three times more energy, have more chemical energy or larger than phytoplankton elsewhere in the world. And it's that, you know, bottom of the food chain that feeds the um, fish larvae and the juveniles and the forage fish and, and so forth. So it really is the intersection of those two currents. And what's happened recently is with the warming of the Arctic, um, the um, Labrador current is um, losing a bit of its power, and the Gulf Stream is moving further up into the Gulf of Maine. And that is, accounts for the incredible uh, accelerated warming of the water. And also, the, the banks themselves have something to do with it too, don't they? I think because of yeah the shallowness because when you the shallowness means the um, the phytoplankton at they are kind of drifting at the top layer of the ocean but they're closer to the bottom because it's shallower sunlight is penetrating and uh, phytoplankton actually have chlorophyll and through photosynthesis you know they absorb sunlight and carbon dioxide and emit oxygen. So if you get, and George's Bank is also shallow, so you get a lot of sunlight penetrating and the nutrients are close to the top. You know, it's a recipe and for a vital ecosystem. And and thus the, the profundity of the fishery. Folks, this is the Food Chain Radio Program. Michael Olson, your host for this hour of What's Heating What with Nicholas Sullivan, Senior Research Fellow at Tufts University and the author of The Blue Revolution. So when we come back... Let's look at what a blue revolution looks like. We will be right back. Stay tuned.
Let's go back for more of What's Eating What on the Food Chain with Michael Olson. This is the food chain, and we are talking about a very big food chain, the nation, the world's fisheries, and with a particular focus on the uh, Georgias and the great uh, Grand Banks of the Northeast Continental North America, uh, which has, has been feeding the world for a long, long time, since the year 1000, I guess. Wow. Um, that is a long time. So... But we've fished it out, and um, we've done so largely by virtue of our industrialization of fishing. Nicholas Sullivan, you talk a lot about fishing in the era of the information age. What do you mean by that? Well, I, um, you know, start this book in the 90s where the overfishing was kind of at its peak, and um since then, starting in the year 2000, things have really begun to change. And uh, with the scallop industry, which was kind of down and out in the mid-90s, the change was that scientists and uh, fishermen and regulators collaborated to do a number of very interesting scientific surveys, including dragging underwater cameras along the bottom that would take photos of the scallop beds, beam them up to the pilot house. And so that kind of a very scientific evidence-based approach opened up scallop beds, led to a kind of rotational system like farmers on, on land would use for, with crops. And the scallop industry went from being kind of dead in the water in the mid-90s to now being a $530 million industry, um, mostly out of New Bedford, but up and down the East Coast. And the other thing I would say is that in the other the other part of it is a policy change, which occurred in 2010, when uh, the regulators went from a, a days at sea regime, you know, you could fish X number right. of days per year depending on the stock or species. They went to an annual catch limit, and that and divvied it up into quotas by boat by captain, and that really has. Um, restricted the catch, and protected the stocks. So since 2000, 47 stocks um, in the northeast U.S. that were overfished have now been rebuilt. So it, even though the cod is kind of in demise, decline, and the flounder as well, there are tons of ground fish. There are more ground fish than there were 25 years ago. Uh, so that is kind of a good news story, and it's, I'm trying to kind of flip the narrative and, and tell the positive side of the story because all, all we hear is the dire uh, yeah. end-of-world story. Well, good. There is good news, um, but not so much for the cod at this time. What made us so prolific? It, what turned us into such prolific fishermen um, was, I think, the industrialization of of fishing. Would you give us a thumbnail on that? whole scenario yeah well i mean fishing over the last two centuries has gotten more and more sophisticated right with new technologies but it really picked up post-world war ii when a lot of uh warships or navy boats were turned into fishing craft and and trawlers went deeper and deeper i mean the trawl nets went deeper and deeper and that is really what um and a just basically accelerated from the 50s right up through the 90s. And um, some countries like Iceland 
really um, put the clamps on earlier, like in the 90s, uh, New Zealand, is, I mean, in the 80s, and New Zealand as well. Uh, U.S. is a bit later. Uh, but I'd say about half the world now is pretty, um, has pretty strong fisheries management, you know, in terms of restricting catch and protecting their waters against intrusion. Like even Indonesia is very protective of its waters. And um, they're out, their Coast Guard is out patrolling right. for foreign ships. And, you know, when you say trawling, I, I suspect there are a lot of people who don't know what a trawler does. Would you describe that? Uh, well, a trawl net is just a large net, um, which is open at one end and closed at the other end. The other end, the closed end is called the cod end, because it used to be the catch cod. So is, is that you trawl, and there are midwater trawlers that kind of don't go to the bottom, and then there are bottom bottom trawlers for ground fish living at the bottom. And you just drag the net either to the mid-layer of the ocean or the bottom of the ocean, and fish get pulled in through the open end and get stuck in the cod end, which is closed, and then it's the net is lifted up on the boat and opened up, and you've got all the fish there. Mm -hmm. Does not and, sound like a very selective way of catching fish. No. Well, good point. I was just going to say that, so the problem with that, of course, is that you might have gotten a lot of cod or haddock or whatever you're out for, but you're also getting a lot of other stuff that it was called uh, bycatch, as often unwanted fish. But And those fish were largely then thrown back overboard. Very few of them survived, I think. And it was in 96 when uh, the Magnuson-Stevens Act, which has governed U.S. fisheries since 1976, was rewritten to uh, protect bycatch. And so now, interestingly enough, the um, cod and haddock swim together. They're cousins. And haddock are very abundant. Cod are not very abundant. So if you're fishing for haddock, you have to avoid cod. As a consequence, they're saying now that fishermen are only catching 10 to 15% of the haddock abundance because they're trying to avoid the cod, which is a bycatch, and they're, you know, they don't want to be fined or penalized. Mm -hmm. So I think that is a policy change, and, and which has led to a behavioral change because there's been no choice but to, or you'll be fined and, you know, arrested and, and so forth. So for every country to protect its fishing resources and to make them sustainable, because that is the objective, right, to have a fishery where fishermen can go out and fish and still have fish left to catch next time they go out fishing. Um, so to, to build that world, um, we have to develop lots of rules and regulations and whatnot. But people find ways around those. And you told this wonderful story about uh, a fisherman the, who... Here, Carlos Rafael. Yeah, here, Carlos right? Rafael. Yeah, nicknamed the Codfather, New Bedford fisherman. Uh, before I get to him, I'll just say one thing about sure. um, um, the Magnuson Stephen Zach started in 1976. And the bedrock principle of that is fishing any stock to its maximum sustainable yield. So that's always been the principle that has guided U.S. fisheries. But 
the problem has been, as you just noted, that if you fish one stock to its maximum sustainable yield, you might fish other stocks beyond their sustainable yield. So anyway, the codfather who uh, was arrested and did four years in jail, a very successful Portuguese immigrant fisherman in New Bedford owned 45 or so boats, um, scallop boats and ground fish boats. And he used to, in, in, in the days when the cod were declining, he was catching a lot of cod, but he was calling it haddock, which was abundant. So he was mislabeling uh, fish. He was selling it um, not through normal channels. He had his own processing plant, so he didn't have to really go through the authorities. He would uh, send fish from uh, New Bedford down to New York to the Fulton Street fish market, get cash in, in exchange without any paperwork and so forth. So it was an illegal operation, and he was mislabeling fish, not reporting income, and so forth. Mm -hmm. And it was a very big deal when he was arrested, indicted, and convicted in 2017, I believe. And it has led to a real shift in the industry, I'd say, uh, because it's made everyone aware of the fact that they were really not on, on the up and up all along. Because he certainly wasn't the only person doing that, you know. <laughs> and um, so I think it's really um, – it's part of the kind of post-industrial shift, I think. Is okay, we've got to really straighten out. We got to we got to be transparent. We got to record. We got to report. We got to have monitoring of what we're doing and so forth. All of those regulations that fishermen curse, just like everybody else curses. Them, yes. Right? Yes. Well, the one thing yeah. that you made you talked about vertical integration. Right, and that's what the codfather had because he had he. He had his own boats, caught his own fish, but he also processed it himself and distributed it so it didn't, you know, go through other hands where there would have been kind of a uh, uh, a system that would have identified the mislabeling. And you talk about how the fish goes through 13 hands from whoever catches it to whoever eats yeah, it. Yeah, often that has been the case. But there again, there's a, been a very positive uh, shift in that uh, there's been more um, selling direct, of producer to consumer. Although not all fishermen are going to want to do that because it is like running another business. But there are fish processors who are doing that, and um, so they're, you know, taking out a lot of uh, the, those middle men and those hands in between and um and they're introducing blockchain uh traceability of fish from boat to plate which is kind of a um, bit of a jumbled uh effort at the moment because it's new but right it's the next big thing i i think really because people do want to know where their fish come from they do want to know if it's sustainably caught legally caught and so forth and how it's handled because you know, a fish that goes through 13 pairs of hands or travels 5,000 miles, which is what slow fish says about the average fish on your plate in the U.S., you know, that's not really a fresh piece of fish, right? <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm wondering about that from, with respect to your, yeah. your scallops that I eat here on the West Coast, because I'm pretty right. sure they're coming from the East Coast. Right. But they're, you know, probably flash frozen and... Um, sometimes on the boat or sh shortly after um, 
landing. Uh, the scallop industry is very sophisticated, has very, you know, state-of-the-art processing and so forth. And flash freezing, uh, two things have happened. One is um, super chilling systems. This is not so much for scallops, but maybe it is, where you keep uh, uh, ice slurry at, say, 31 degrees, fish freeze at 28. So you keep the fish fresh, you know, before you land them. And there's flash freezing systems where you just kind of, once you've processed them, they're flash frozen. And uh, so that that really locks in kind of mm-hmm. the natural freshness. Well, I often think that, uh, you know, flash frozen fish are a, a lot of times superior to fresh fish. That really, Because I, as I understand it, fresh only means that it hasn't been frozen. Am I right? Right, right. And it may be 10 days old or something, right? And um, you really would like a fish that's seven days or less, you know, old that hasn't been frozen. There's a company called Sitka, Sitka, after Sitka, Alaska, Salmon Shares. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law, 18 plus, terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Which is um, selling mostly salmon, but all kinds of fish from Alaska all over the country and it is definitely flash frozen because it's got to travel a distance. Uh, but you know, they've got, uh, you know, you sign up for a monthly share and mm-hmm. you get your, your flash frozen fish from Alaska. So that, that's a new trend. It, you know, it's a high end, um, thing. It's not going to feed the world necessarily, but it is a positive development for sure. Yeah. So, Let's let's go back to the Magnuson Stevenson Act. Uh, we here in the United States came to the conclusion that uh, to avoid what happened to the grand banks, we'd have to take control somehow of, of our fisheries. To what extent did the Magnuson Stevenson Act change the fisheries? Well, the first thing it did in 1976, and the real impetus behind it was. At that point, there was like a 12-mile um, federal limit, and beyond that was the high seas. So in the 70s, there were um, factory ships from Russia and Eastern Europe off the shores of Cape Cod on George's Bank. You could see them from the shorelines, and they were just sucking up masses of fish. And the little day boats out of Cape Cod were just getting um, you know, hammered by the big ships. So the Magnuson-Stevens Act, its primary goal initially was to establish the 200-mile limit and push the foreign ships off of Georgia's bank and to establish the principle of maximum sustainable yield. 
But what so happened those, after those that are two is, big steps right there. First of all, you're claiming your turf. Right. Now, did everybody yep. agree with that and say, oh, uh, yeah, you can have 200 miles. And it's okay with me. Yeah, well, it's now become, it was kind of uh, enshrined by the U.N. Uh, in, the, in the 80s. Uh, so it's now every country has got 200-mile limit. So the United States now has more ocean territory, the second most ocean territory in the world after France. And it's got more water, more land underwater than it does above water, which is amazing. So uh, when you talk about aquaculture, I don't know if you do want to talk about aquaculture, yeah. but the United well, we're States... We're going to take huge. a break here in, in just a minute. So we'll pick yeah. up aquaculture, fish farming uh, from that. But uh, the two big things of, of Magnuson Stevens, first of all, we declared... We own this turf 200 miles from our shore. That's a big deal. And and the second thing is maximum sustainable harvesting, which is to say we harvest as much as we can without messing things up, right? Correct. And then it was rewritten in 96 to say, okay, well, there's this bycatch issue. If you're fishing one stock to its maximum sustainable yield, you may be overfishing other fish. So we've got to consider the whole ecosystem, not just an individual stock, which is, and then in uh, the 2010 was, let's go to annual catch limits for each species. Like NOAA oversees 450 species in the U.S., which is amazing. Wow. Right? And, and they, do, they don't do annual catch limits for all of those, but they do it for all the major ones every year, which is a lot of surveying, a lot of science, and a lot of... Uh, uh, a lot uh, of headaches for fishermen trying to keep track of it all. Folks, this is the Food Chain Radio Program. Mike Lawson with uh, Nicholas Sullivan, the author of The Blue Revolution. When we come back, I forgot to ask him, what is The Blue Revolution? Stay tuned. History buffs. This tale from Michael Olson's Tales from a Tin Can took place aboard the USS Dale at Iniwetok, February 1944. We got detached for some close-in shore bombardment on one of the little coral islands. From a distance, they're just little slivers of white and green separating the blue sea and sky. Somehow we found ourselves blasting away with our five-inchers from one side of the island, while the big old battleships on the other side were booming away with their giant 16-inch rifles. Trouble was, the trajectory of their rounds was flat, so a bunch of those 16-inch shells hit that round slip of coral and ricocheted right off in our direction. You could hear them roaring past right over our head, and they didn't sound friendly at all. Captain said, let's get the hell out of here. Tales from a Tin Can contains 424 tales by 44 sailors aboard the USS Dale, from Pearl Harbor to Tokyo Bay. Order your Father's Day copy at talesfromatincan.com. That's talesfromatincan.com. Talesfromatincan.com. Come on, you watch the news. Be prepared to pay more taxes. Then if you owe back taxes or haven't filed in a few years, get ready. The IRS, the largest collection agency in the world, will be coming after you. With the power to collect taxes by any means they want to. Hey, they can freeze your bank account, your passport, even padlock your business. Oh, good times. Look, if the IRS claims you owe them 5000 or more in back taxes and they're coming after you, don't panic. Call my friends at Get a Tax Lawyer first. Their job is to negotiate with the IRS and save you money. They're experts at it. That's all they do. And you can trust them. 
In some cases, they have reduced a $50,000 tax bill to less than $1,000. If you owe the IRS $5,000 or more in back taxes, call now for a free consultation. Call 800-661-5096. 800-661-5096. That's 800-661-5096. Are you nearly maxed out in your credit cards? It doesn't matter if you're using your credit cards for fun or to survive. At the end of the month, your statements come in. And you can either pay them or you can't. If you can't, late fees and interest rates get tacked on. And now you're struggling just to make the minimum payment due. Do you feel trapped? Am I talking to you? Good, because I personally researched some companies that can help you. They may be able to reduce your credit card balances by 50% and stop the late fees. If you qualify, please call our special debt hotline number right now for a complimentary free five-minute consultation. Deal with your credit card problem now before it gets much worse and put more money back in your pocket. Trust me, I've been there too. Call right now. 800-370-8128. 800-370-8128. 800-370-8128. That's 800-370-8128. So much to say, so little time to say it on the food chain with Michael Olson. Let's go fishing. I love to go fishing. I love to eat fish. And I worry, though, that Somehow we might figure out uh, how to how to do to fish what we did with the buffalo, and that would be very very distressing indeed for everybody in the world. But we've done a lot to turn those things around, um, and one of them is of course we passed laws that uh, really govern how we go about doing our fishing. Is that Nicholas Sullivan part of the blue revolution of which you speak? Um, I think it is. Um, the Blue Revolution does have, I've, I've kind of extended the original idea of the Blue Revolution. Uh, there was in the 60s and 70s, in uh, 80s, something called the Green Revolution, which uh, started in Mexico and spread to Norman Asia. Norman Borlaug. Yes, to increase yields of rice and grain and so forth. And I think it quadrupled them, but ended up kind of over uh, farming and monocropping the same land and using maybe too many pesticides and fertilizers. And, but then in the 80s, there was a blue revolution for fishing, for farm fish, mostly freshwater fish, started in India and, of course, spread throughout China, mm-hmm. which has been farming you know, freshwater fish for centuries. Ever. And um, so I took that blue revolution and said, well, things are really changing. It's moving into the Western world, throughout the world. It's moving from freshwater to the ocean, uh, and it's got new tools, new technologies, new science, and it's part of the information age. So hopefully we've learned a lot. And the Blue Revolution in India made a lot of the same mistakes as the Green Revolution. You know, they they overfished. They pulled out mangrove swamps for shrimp uh, farms, and um, it was not environmentally uh, sustainable, Mm -hmm. put it that way. Uh, so anyway, that's my blue revolution is an extension, the modern version of the original blue revolution. And when you talk about the information age, you're talk, really talking about uh, information or data management, right? Correct. Yeah. And, you know, the whole thing about the ocean uh, and, and, and uh, when you're talking about 
farm fish. Um, it is so um, there's so much unknown about the ocean, right? So data collection has become a part of the blue uh, economy. How do we collect data to better understand the ocean, what's going on, especially with the climate change impacts? And if you're farming fish, you know they're very high tech technology systems that are totally dependent on sensors and machine learning algorithms to operate those things. So, um, yeah, it is, it's, it's data and um, data and science uh, coming to the fore, as opposed to just good old fashioned, get on a boat and go hunting. You know, yeah, that's, there you yeah. go. The last of the hunters and gatherers, right? Right. Well, fish is the last wild food commercially hunted wild food in the world. So it would be nice to save it. And, you know, one of the other thing that's happening in that regard is there's more emphasis on getting more value out of the fish. So like 40% of most fish is thrown away, the skeleton, the head, the, you know, the, the innards. And there's a, a movement started in Iceland now spreading uh, throughout the world, especially the United States, to find ways to utilize that kind of quote-unquote, waste, turn waste into value. Yeah, isn't one of those ways uh, grinding up the, me, the, the leftovers into uh, fish meal pellets that you feed back to fish in fish farms? Uh, that is part of it. It's in tr uh, turning it into pet food or uh, fertilizer and, and so forth. Um, but a lot of the fish meal and fish oil comes from actual forage fish like you know menhaden and uh herring and things like that <clears throat> but that has also really changed because you know that was very upsetting to a lot of people well why are we robbing peter with forage fish to pay, to pay paul you know feed other fish uh and so now they're doing single cell protein uh you know insect larvae mm -hmm. and there are other ways to get protein into fish without using other fish. Yeah, those are some of the things they, they want us to eat, too. Single-cell protein know. and insect powder. Yeah. Make your, make your breakfast shake with them, right? <laughs> That's right, yeah. And kelp. It's the, the darling of the blue-green economy these days, right? And um, Now, kelp it, is a, a, a very miraculous plant, if you think about it, because it's just hanging there in seawater, which dissolves just about everything. So there are a lot of things in kelp that are very valuable to the food chain. Right. And the other thing about kelp is it absorbs CO2. So, you know, as you, as you know, the ocean is a great buffer for CO2, uh, but there's a limit to how much it can buffer. So now there, uh, there's some evidence, and they're doing more study on this, that if you grow shellfish and kelp, in the same location, the shellfish have thicker shells and for meat. They're not fighting off the two, which is destroys the calcium carbonate in their shells. So uh, it's very kind of restorative. You know, I found out recently, uh, I met and um, heard a talk by the head of aquaculture at the Nature Conservancy, and he said that. Uh, globally, 60% of all aquaculture is actually shellfish and kelp, which is amazing to me because, you know, you hear all these stories about fin, finfish farming being so terrible, but 
farming is actually restorative to the ocean. And the other thing that's happening with the finfish farming is that the land-based farms, they're um, proliferating in New England now and uh, parts of Europe. And uh, I think there's some plan for California. There's one in Wisconsin and Indiana. They're, uh, so they're taking fish out of the water onto land into systems where you can control the environment mm-hmm. and reduce the environmental the negative environmental impacts significantly. Well, they're doing that with just about everything, you know, even strawberries. They're building uh, vertical farms in warehouses so that you, right. <laughs> you, yeah. you don't have to mess with Mother Earth at all. You're hiding out in, yeah. a, in a warehouse uh, someplace. Hydro, hydroponics. Yeah. Well, you know, some of the uh, fish farms are developing aquaponics, turning... Um, the, the water from the fish farms in into combining it with uh, aquaculture with hydroponics into aquaponics and growing greens and hemp and things mm-hmm. like that. So lots of things to experiment with. As the Chinese have been doing them, doing the aquaponics for you know millenniums. So I guess we could learn a lot from how they do things. Um, it, so what we're seeing. Is, is a kind of a transformation of our fisheries so that we can avoid uh, the destruction of those fisheries. One of the saddest stories, I think, about our, our treatment of fisheries is the Atlantic salmon. What happened to it? Yeah, well, you know, it's been illegal to hunt um, Atlantic salmon uh, since 1948 in the U.S., and I and you can do recreational salmon fishing in Canada and Iceland and things, but commercially it's been illegal since 1948. I I actually honestly don't know. I mean, some of it was um, uh, overfishing, obviously, but again, there's another impact of climate change which is affecting salmon. Is that you know. The phytoplankton we talked about earlier have less energy than they used to, which means that fish like the capelin, which is a small forage fish that salmon feed on, has less energy. So the salmon are having to exert more energy to get the energy they need, and there's less oxygen in the water. So they're in a kind of hard place. They're getting squeezed. Um, But I don't know if you know, well, actually, the other thing that's happened with salmon is the the, the dams that were cutting off the, the, their, their spawning grounds at the you know the headwaters of rivers, and uh, but that's been going on for a couple of centuries, so that's not a not a recent phenomenon. Well, it seems like the Atlantic salmon is somewhat emblematic of the direction of fisheries, uh, where a fish used to be swimming in the sea. They're now swimming in farms, and that is the salmon that we tend to get almost all over the world now is farmed Atlantic salmon, correct? That is correct. Yeah, it is. uh, We import, I think, $4 billion, or maybe that's even an old number, so it's probably more than that, $4 billion worth of farmed salmon from, you know, uh, Norway and Chile. And, you know, uh, China, speaking of China and aquaculture, they have just built a uh, far a, a ship, a farm fish ship that is twice as long as the Titanic. It's like eight or nine hundred feet long, 
and they are farming Atlantic salmon, which is unbelievable, right? Which is not a native. In, well, how would they, you mean in the ship? Yeah, they've got all these tanks in there, and they're you know they're sucking in ocean water, circulating it through the tanks, and they've got you know you know eighty thousand cubic meters of water and and it's a new it's a very new thing and it's a so uh i i kind of wonder if this really fits the post-industrial well it does does it about or it's a, it it does because we're you know we're we're trying to reach for a way of making a fishery sustainable and right. if you think about how you could you know take a ship and kind of move it through the ocean and have that fresh ocean water cycling through the, um, I don't know, it seems kind of far-fetched, but... Yeah, well, yeah. Well, I'm glad you have that take on it, because I've been kind of twisting on that. <laughs> and, uh, but, um, yeah, so there's definitely a lot going on, and, uh, you know, most of what Americans eat, or 65% of what Americans eat is farmed salmon, farmed shrimp, and tuna from other parts of the world. That's why this whole local catch movement, this direct uh, producer to consumer movement, the community supported fisheries, all that is so great. And um, because it's, you know, eating fish closer to us, uh, eating what the ocean provides rather than saying, I've got to have salmon from the other side of the world rather than fresh fish from my backyard, you know, it's... Uh, so one of, one of the things I always like to say is uh, it, true joy is food with its farmer's face on it. So the same no, could no, be said yeah. with fish, right? Fish with its fisherman's face on it. So yeah, if, you, you know, if you're close enough to the beach where you can meet a, f- a fisherman, you're in, in business with respect to fish. And, uh, you know, there's a... Just one... Do I have a second? To, sure, go thing, ahead. There's, yeah. there's, there's a company in... Um, uh, Boston and New Bedford called Red's Best, uh, run by Jared Auerbach. And Re- they're not a fisherman, but they go around to docks up and down Massachusetts and Rhode Island, collect fish of all kinds, whatever is being caught, brought in, process it, and and distribute it. And um, one of the things they do is they're putting QR codes on all their packaging uh, that has the story of the boat and the fisherman and the location in which it was caught. So it's not a blockchain thing, uh, but it is a storytelling device. Mm-hmm. And it really does put a, exactly what you said. It puts a face on the farmer, a face on the fisherman. Because you, you, you can see the fisherman, you see the boat, you see where it was caught. It's, it's a simple thing, uh, but it's very powerful. Food with its farmer's face on it and fish with its fisherman's face on it. There you go. <laughs> it's about that provenance. You know, where is my food coming from? How do they grow it? What's in it? And, you know, we've been talking about uh, how the climate is changing the oceans and how uh, fish are finding it harder to get the nutrition needed to sustain and, and grow populations. So those pieces of information are extremely valuable to my way of thinking. Yeah. So, so you know, you talk about the Providence. One, uh, one of my favorite quotes is from Barton Sieber, the great seafood chef and sustainability advocate and seafood literacy advocate who always says that um, seafood is the only protein that is guilty until proven innocent. And <laughs> that is that people have such suspicions about 
seafood. And that those are the kind of the negative perceptions that I encounter when I was researching this and trying to counter them with a more positive narrative. You know? well, I think you and, I think you described that when you talked about how you know the average fish goes 5,000 miles from 13 different hands. How do you know? You don't really know. Michael Olson's second law of the food chain, which is what we're going to dedicate this show to, the farther we go from the source of our food, the less control we have over what's in our food. And uh, it's just the, that's why people are suspicious of fish, because it's far away. And if it's closer, if we can figure out how to make it closer, it's going to be better for everybody, I think. Yeah, well, that is true. It, whatever, whatever, all that you said is true, except that Americans, by and large, are eating in restaurants, farm shrimp and salmon from the other side of the world. There you go. So they say that, but they just got to have their shrimp and salmon. And uh, <laughs> and uh, well, that, that's a that's what we're, I guess, most comfortable with. We have to have our fish and salmon. Well, folks, yeah. uh, this has been the Food Chain Radio Program. Michael Olson, this is the 1314th show. Today we're talking about fish. Can we catch fish so there will be fish left to catch? Nicholas Sullivan, Senior Research Fellow at Tufts University and author of The Blue Revolution, Hunting, Harvesting, and Farming Seafood in the Information Age. They, Nicholas, thank you so much for joining us. And um, let's go fishing. Thank you very much. And just one additional note to the book. It's published by Island Press, and you can buy it from them uh, at a 20% discount with the promo code Sullivan. There you go. Uh, good read. Thank you, Nicholas. Thank you very much, Michael. It was a pleasure speaking with you. I love your laws of food chain. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you very much, everybody. You've been listening to the award-winning Food Chain Radio Show with Michael Olson. And if your friends miss the show, tell them to log on the Food Chain page at metrofarm.com for a listen. Now, go out and find some food with its farmer's face on it and live. If you're ready for a Las Vegas vacation, here's an offer you can't refuse. The Vegas Travel Center is offering three days and two nights in Vegas free. Just call 909-406-7400. The offer includes accommodations with two free tickets to great Las Vegas entertainment with free meals. So if you're planning a trip to Vegas, you need to jump on this right now. Just call 909-406-7400. Obviously, an offer like this is not going to last. So call now, 909-406-7400 for your three-day, two-night Vegas vacation. That number again, 909-406-7400. Call now. KCAA Radio has openings for one-hour talk shows. If you want to host a radio show, now is the time. Make KCAA your flagship station. Our rates are affordable and our services are second to none. We broadcast on three terrestrial frequencies to a population of 5 million people. Plus, we stream and podcast on all major online audio and video systems. If you've been thinking about broadcasting a weekly radio program on Real Radio plus the Internet, contact our CEO at 281 
281-599-9800. You can Skype your show from your home to our Redlands, California studio where our live producers and engineers are ready to work with you personally. A radio program on KCAA is the perfect work from home avocation in these stressful times. Just type kcaaradio.com into your browser to learn more about hosting a show on the best station in the nation or call our CEO for details, 281-599-9800. This is Judge Herb Dodell, and our show is called For the People. It's available every Monday at 4 o'clock, 4 to 5. And we'll be talking about all kinds of things pertaining to the law and how it really works from the inside as opposed to the outside. So tune in and learn all you need to know about the legal system and how it works. Bob Vila here with my home improvement tip of the day. Need a quick and easy way to fasten a patch on sheet metal? One of the best options is to use so-called pop rivets. They come in various sizes, and when installed correctly, they'll create a strong, durable bond between the metal patch you've prepared and the sheet you're attaching it to. They work like this. First, you position the patch where you want it. Then, drill holes around the perimeter. Next, working one hole at a time, you insert the long, nail-like end of a rivet into a special pliers-like tool. Then, insert the other end of the rivet through the holes you've drilled. Squeezing the handles of the tool together a few times causes the ends of the rivet to flatten out and be drawn together. When the rivet is fully compressed, the nail-like end snaps off and is discarded. Pop rivets are also known as blind rivets. That's because of one very big plus. They can be used even when only one side of the material you're working on is accessible. Get more info at BobVila.com and right here at home with me, Bob Vila. KCAA. Tune into KCAA Radio every Wednesday at 4 p.m. for Coffee and Cash Flow with Stephen and Anthony. Stephen Crawford and Anthony Skinner share their expertise of financial markets and offer a unique perspective on retirement security and the impact that Wall Street and Washington have on your retirement income and your overall quality of life. Coffee and Cash Flow looks beyond the propaganda of Wall Street and Washington for a realistic perspective of financial markets and the rules that control the game. Tune in for Coffee and Cash Flow with Stephen and Anthony every Wednesday afternoon at 4 p.m. Right here at KCAA Radio, 1050 a.m., 102.3 FM, and 106.5 FM. And online at kcaaradio.com. The stations that leave no listener behind. Tahibo Tea Club's original Pure Pouty Arco Super Tea comes from the only tree in the world that fungus does not grow on. As a result, it naturally has antifungal, anti-infection, antiviral, antibacterial, anti-inflammation, and anti-parasite properties. So the tea is great for healthy people because it helps build the immune system, and it can truly be miraculous for someone fighting a potentially life-threatening disease due to an infection, diabetes, or cancer. The tea is also organic and naturally caffeine-free. A one-pound package of tea is $49.95, which includes shipping. To order, please visit TeheboTeaClub.com. Tehebo is spelled T like Tom, A-H-E-E-B like boy, O, then continue with the word T and then the word club. The complete website is TeheboTeaClub.com or call us at 818-610-8088, Monday through Saturday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. California time. That's 818-610-8088, TeheboTeaClub.com. I'm Rick Smith, host of The Rick Smith Show, inviting you to listen to my show during the noon hour every weekday right here on KCAA. 
My show is sponsored locally by Teamsters 1932, a strong union with 14,000 members in the IE. Our message is clear. Unions improve the lives of working people. You have a right to form and join a union. So go to Teamsters1932.org and get started now. K-C-A-A. Hi, it's Dr. Jamie Turndorf, host of Ask Dr. Love, the number one relationship advice show in America, brought to you by Membrace and Life, the number one vaginal moisture supplement. If you're scared to stick your toe back in the dating pool or your relationships are rocky or your sex life is sagging, have no fear. Dr. Love is here. I'm a number one best-selling author with 40 years in the love trenches. Tune in to Ask Dr. Love Tuesdays, 7 to 8 a.m. and tune up all your relationships. You're on board KCAA's Inland Talk Express. KCAA, Loma Linda, 1050 a.m., the station that leaves no listener behind. 